Greetings and salutations, and welcome to Radio Days, a podcast radio program that delves into the world of terrestrial radio. It's DJs and on-air personality, and you, all fans of radio as a medium. Here's your host, Ron. Hello and welcome to Radio Days, the podcast. Today's show is produced by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos or professional photography, headshots, magic of live podcast, drone footage from a licensed drone pilot, all you need to do is head over to ronrobinsonstudios.com. You can also hear previous episodes of Radio Days, the podcast there as well. Here are my interviews with Dick Purton, Donald Schuster, China Jones, Kara D'Alessandro, the late John O'Leary, just to name a few. While you're there, you can also shop for our new online merch store. You can get your Radio Days, the podcast, hats and shirts. Um, also, I want to remind you our documentary about the history of terrestrial radio. The movie is called Radio Days, 101 Years of Radio. I'm in the editing phase, only a few interviews left to do. That movie should premiere in the spring of 2022, just a few months away. If you'd like to help out and become a producer for this doc, click on the Patreon or PayPal links. You can find that at the top of the page of the Buzzsprout or RonRobinsonStudios.com. Also, if you'd like to help out, you can do so, like I mentioned, by buying some merchandise from the store there. Also, I want to thank you for tuning in to this podcast. I really appreciate it. If you are enjoying this podcast and what we do here, do me a favor, share it with your friends. And if there's a radio personality, former or otherwise, that you'd like to hear more about, shoot me an email at ron at ronrobinsonstudios.com. Well, my guest today, uh, yet another Detroit radio legend. He's been on the air at WABX and The Riff in Detroit, WNEW in New York, KLOS, as well as KROQ in LA, WMMR Philadelphia, WS, w, excuse me, WLS Chicago. And before I read any further, I'm probably going to need some oxygen to read his resume. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome all the way from California, Mr. Dan Carlisle. How are you, sir? Very good, yourself. I can't complain. How how's, how are things in in California now? Now you live in San Francisco, correct? Correct. Yeah. How, how do you like uh, the weather? You love. I mean, I I love San Francisco because you experience all four seasons in one day there. Yeah, it's, it has a lot of microclimates, um, but in the city itself, it's like perpetual fall, which is easy. You know, I like it. Right. Well, before we get started, I'd be remiss. I have to ask you about a mutual friend that we just lost. Could you talk a little bit about uh, John O'Leary and, and, and talk about, because uh, you knew him way back when, could you talk a little bit about what, the John O'Leary you knew? Well, first of all, what happened to John is just obscene. I mean, it it really stunned me, I have to say. Because, you know, if somebody dies a natural death, that's one thing. But uh, from violence like that, it's it's awful. Well, I met John um, back at W4, and he was, you know, he's like, like all of us were at some time in our career. He was he was up for the challenge, a nice fellow, uh, always treated everybody nicely. I mean, what else can I say about him? Uh, I liked being his friend over the years. Well, I, I don't know if he, he couldn't have been much different. He, to me, it was just always fun to be around. Yeah. Um, you know, realize that I, I'm older than John and and yeah, he was fun to be around. What is your earliest memory of listening to the radio? I believe I remember, well, I do remember The Shadow, and I remember uh, Gene Autry and Hopalong Cassidy on the radio. 
Yeah, so the radio serials, which ended up becoming TV shows, they would they would be on on the radio, which is kind of interesting uh, to think about now. But what talk about that dynamic of what radio was way back when? Well, I think that one thing it did is that you really had to use your imagination, right? Because they're using sound effects, uh, etc., on these radio shows. You couldn't see anything. So let's say the Shadow, which was a kind of a scary radio show. You have to use your imagination about the dark street and the shadows across the wall. You know, it was definitely theater of, of the mind, right? Theater of the mind. Is exactly. What, you know. Exactly. I've been in the studio up at uh, which is now uh, WDET, where they used to do the Long Ranger. Yeah, Long Ranger was done here in Detroit. Or there in Detroit, the Ma- the McAfee Building. Yeah, right. And they had a huge studio, high ceilings, and they had tables. You know, with the uh, horseshoes that they would clip clop <laughs> for uh, the Long Ranger, and lots of people could be in that room acting. You know, now it's one thing to be a fan of radio, especially you know growing up in, in that time period. But talk to me about how you came to work in radio. Talk about when you decided, okay, this is what I want to do for a living. Well, okay, um, I went over to WXYZ where I met a young guy whose father worked there at, at college. And I interviewed to be a, uh, you know, a, a wire, it's called the wire boy then. The wire boy took care of the news wires that were always feeding news from around the world. And your job was to clear them and hang up the stories so that the uh, TV news, which is right next door, WXYZ, and radio news, could go and see the updates every hour of the stories around the world. You were also, you had to listen to the bells on these machines. Ten bells meant national emergency. You know what I mean? So it descended in importance, how many bells these things would be ringing. It was a noisy, cacophonous uh, place, so it was sealed off on the rest of the newsroom. Interesting. And I would, and I would, uh, give the weather to the DJs uh, once an hour, which is exactly why I was there. I wanted to be around Lee Allen and Dave Prince and, you know, all of these great DJs, which I was. And it was, uh, it was fascinating to me. Now, did you find yourself in awe of, of somebody like Lee Allen because he was such a big deal at that time? Well, of course. I mean, Lee Allen was the hottest DJ in Detroit for a number of years, someone that you listen to every night. And when you're cruising on Woodward Avenue, you know, everybody had Lee Allen on their radio. So it was interesting to meet him, you know, because he had a different persona on the radio, really, than he was uh, in person. Yeah, it's interesting how that works sometimes. Talk about your first job in radio. Where was your first job in radio, Dan? Well, I was up in, up in Michigan State, and I was uh, doing radio on the, you know, the all-campus network. That's my first taste of it. And, of course, I was terrible, <laughs> from what I remember. And then I decided to uh, quit school. And uh, remember Joey Reynolds, the name Joey Reynolds? He got me an uh, interview at a country western station in Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, I knew nothing about country radio, but I wanted to be in radio. I got that job, and I went there. I didn't know anybody. So I went there. Um, my parents were not happy about this, of course, quitting school and all. But, you know, I was in my 20s, so I knew better than anybody else. 
So it was um, typical first job where you go to a small market where most of the people on these stations were either failed talent, which I mean by that is they didn't have enough to get, you know, move up in the markets. And a lot of them were alcoholics and abusive people. So you, that's how you got treated. You got treated badly. But you had to do it. Um, and as soon as I could, I left. You know. And my second job was in Green Bay, Wisconsin, at a top 40 station, which is what I wanted to do. I mean, there were no FM stations then doing anything. And so uh, I lasted there, I'm trying to remember, maybe six months. And then one day the general manager called me in his office and he said, you don't have any talent and you should just go home and go back to college. Oh, my. So it was, you know, that was a brutal to a young person. So I had enough money, just enough money. He wouldn't give me any severance pay or anything. I had just enough money to catch a flight to Detroit from Green Bay, which I did. And my parents picked me up, and I thought, well, I think I've had it with this radio thing. I don't want to be alone anymore, a thousand miles away. So my father got me a job in a construction company, and I was a field clerk, which means you sat in a trailer all day answering the phone, or basically you just sat in the trailer all day, and and uh, that's what you did. On the weekends, I had got a job in Saginaw, Michigan, doing Top 40 all night on the weekends. I would drive up, stay at the YMCA. I did this very briefly, and about a month into it, I thought, you know, I screw it. I'll go back to state in a couple of months go back to school so I'm in this this trailer and I have my FM radio tuned in and I hear WABX they were maybe playing five or six hours a day I don't remember exactly of rock and the rest of it was like the Polish hour the German hour stuff like that because it was cheap on FM you know hardly anybody listened to it so I called and I talked to a guy named John Small and he said, come down for an interview. I did. I brought my air check, and he listened to it. And still, I wasn't very good. I want to express that. Well, I mean, it's he early. Said, early in your career, that's understandable. Yeah. <laughs> so he says, uh, can you type? And I said, yeah, I can type. Because if you're, in those days, if you were going to go to college, you had to take typing in high school because you'll need it, right? So he said, if you'll type the logs, I'll give you a show. He said, go, if you'll go in the studio now. You can do my show today. It was an afternoon show because I want to hear what you do. Fortunately, I had been liking Jimi Hendrix and Cream and all this new stuff. So I went in and I did a show and I came out later and he said, yeah, okay, you have the job. I lasted doing the logs for about a week. I did such a terrible job. You know, they were using these, these sheets that had a blue carbon in the middle of it. Uh-huh. And you put it in the typewriter and you type and it makes copies. And you have to be good typists. You can't be making mistakes. Well, that wasn't me. You know? Right, right. So he said, okay, you just do the show. Screw the log typing. You're terrible at that. So I had the afternoon show on the fifth market on a station. I had no idea how this was going to work out. And so I was there for a while. It was just fantastic. And I, my name was Terry King then. Terry, Terry King? 
Terry, T-E-R-R-Y. Now, how, just out of, curi- out of curiosity, how did you come up with that, Dan? I had no idea. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm lucky it was just Terry King and not something more absurd. <laughs> so um, I had that, that stage name, as we call it. Almost all DJs did that, you know, especially in those days, if you were Jewish, you might change your name to a more Anglo-sounding name because of the way society was. I think um, the next guy that came the beginning of the building of the original Aries was, was Jerry Lubin. And he was, I can't remember, Jerry Jerry had an Irish name, O'Neill. I think O'Neill <laughs> was his name. <clears throat> and there's a prime example of a Jewish guy taking an Irish name. And then after that, Dave Dixon came. Dave you know, Dixon, was, yeah. Yeah, it came, and, and we didn't get along right at first because he was difficult. I say he was difficult. He says I was difficult. But we were we, we, had, we were great friends. And so what year are we talking here? 67, I think, 68. Oh, so you got the ABX in 67, 68. So that's the height of the Beatles. I mean, that's where right before they broke up. Um, that's about a... I think I was there a good year and a half before that happened, if I remember correctly, because I was at WKNR when that happened. Now, looking, looking back all these years later, are you surprised, that, and we're going to talk more about ABX, but you know, before we get into that, are you surprised that here we are all this years later, all these years later, that uh, ABX is still, I, I mean, it's one of the most popular Facebook pages of any groups, of, of any category. I mean, it's just, it's ABX is still looked upon so fondly. Why, why do you think that is? Well, a number of things come into play. Um, first of all, anything that was going on during your puberty time uh, makes an impression, right? I mean, that's why I liked WXYZ and Lee Allen. Was, I was 15 years old, 14 years old. So you, we played a big part in people's lives. We were the background you know, for their life right. at that time. It was exciting to see these new bands. Uh, but mostly, I think, because the DJs at ABX were just like their audience. We were young. We dressed the same. We liked to get buzzed. We liked the same music. So we could relate to each other very well. It, it was anti-CKLW. I mean, it was like the exact opposite of what they were doing, right? Exactly. You know, a CKLW with a song like Light My Fire, their version was three minutes long. Ours was eight minutes long. So we were authentic. That's what we wanted to be, was authentic. You know, there were times when I was on ABX that Tom Shannon would be sitting in the back of my of our studio while I was on the air at ABX. He would get off the air at CKLW and come over to hang out at ABX. Because all DJs wanted to have that kind of freedom, if they could. Tom Shan's trade-off was that he got paid a lot of money, and we got paid 80 bucks a week at that time. Anybody who's listened to this podcast know I've, I've always been, you know, I've, I talked to Mike Staff about this, and of course John O'Leary. I've, I've always, coming up, you know, in the digital, at the beginning of the digital era, I was always very kind of envious of your generation where, you would get to pick your own records that you played on your on your program. Could you talk to me a little bit about what your procedure was when you would when you would do a show, how you would play your records, how did you pick them, what what you decided to play, what you decided not to yeah. play? Could you talk about that? Yeah. Everybody usually got a copy of everything that was new. Um 
it was just necessary because that was our job to listen to music. So that would take that stuff home, you know, and it was just a ton, just as it is today. And you would listen and pick out what you want and what cut you like. So I would go in and usually I would get there an hour before my show and you don't like to bother the other guy, you know, in in the studio when he's creating. So about 20 minutes before my show, I'd wander in there and I'd pick maybe 10 albums out. And to me, those 10 albums would be possibilities. And from those those 10, from the first, I would pick a first song, and then from there, I would just let it flow. Okay, I played this song, or I think blah, 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 sound good next. Go to the library, pick that out, and play it. It was really very organic, you know, and you just played it as you felt it. Now, did you hang out with some of the other jacks? You mentioned Jerry Lubin. We've talked about John O'Leary, uh, um, Dave, uh, uh, Mr. Dixon, also uh, Chuck Santoni came later. Did you guys hang out, or, and what was it like? Uh, talk about the dynamic of what it was like to be a part of, you know, at the time you didn't think anything of it, but it was kind of like the first all-star all-star team as far as Jock goes. Jocks go. Yeah. Well, first, first, you know, Mr. Santoni and uh, John Larry, those were in, uh, like a second generation there. Right, but but, but Jerry um, Lubin was there. You were there. I mean, who else was there early on? Uh, Larry Miller, who's deceased. Dave Dixon, Jerry Lubin, me. Good one was in Boston now. At one time, Mark Perno and uh, Paul Greiner, Rudnick and Frawley were on at that time. Frawley stayed, Rudnick left. Yeah, we all hung out pretty much together. I think me and Dave Dixon um, and uh, you know, me and Dave Dixon and Mark Perno probably were the closest to each other. Jerry Lubin, you know, Jerry Lubin was a man of the family. He had children. So his life was different than ours. We were just maniacs, you know. We had no responsibilities except that. Uh, we were hanging out. We were getting around. We were partying. You know, the typical thing you do when you have no responsibility. Right. Now, I want to ask you about this because, you know, in my documentary about the, the history of radio, there's a segment where I talk about the rock wars that kind of started in the 70s and kind of filtered through the 80s. But when you were there early on, you know, we were talking about the early days of ABX. It pretty much was just WXYZ, which was before it became Riff, and then CAR. That was the early kind of rock wars. Were you conscious of that, uh, that you were competing against those other two stations? And then, of course, later when Riff became Riff and Wheels came into the mix. I mean, were you aware of those uh, competition? <clears throat> how was that How was that with you for you? Well, actually, WXYZ, I think, was, was gone by then as a rock station. It was on the AM, it was WKNR. Right, and, and these stations obviously were to, to try to compete with what you guys were doing at ABX. Well, they didn't believe we were in competition at all. They thought that we were nuts, that we didn't, we talked like regular people. We didn't, you know, we didn't play jingles. We didn't hoopla. So they thought we were losers. They just weren't paying attention is what they weren't doing. So uh, we used to play. You know, we would do things just to have fun to, to agitate them. For instance, the record companies would always give CKLW, this is early on, uh, the Beatles or something first before they'd give it to us because that helped them get their other records played. So when Hey Jude came up, uh, CKLW had it first. We thought, well, let's see if we can go to the, the beast a little bit. So we went on and said we had the long version of Hey Jude. 
And what we would do is we would put it on one turntable, and when it got to the middle point where it was going, nah, 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 we would segue, be, we would be slowly using our fingers to bring it up to the speed of the other record. You'd hear just a little bit of phasing because of it. And then we would change, you know, pots on it. Wow. Uh, and that would go on and on. And so CKLW freaked out and got angry at Capitol demanding the long version of Beijou. <laughs> <clears throat> but what they didn't do is they never timed what we did. Some minutes it was eight minutes long, and then maybe on Jerry Lubin's show, it would be 12 minutes long. It just depended on how, how long you wanted to keep it rolling, you know, in the studio. Yeah. So that, that's all they had to do was time it to know that we were just pulling a joke on them. Another jock that worked there was Dennis Frawley, and that's another question I wanted to ask you with working with these people. Did you ever inadvertently or kind of on purpose kind of steal things from them as far as to make you a better jock or – or, or what was your mindset? Did you listen to them to try to make yourself better, or, or was that the kind of mentality you had or no? Remember, Dennis Frawley was not a, a commercial radio talent. Yeah, he was a writer, theater. right? He started as a writer, right? He was a writer and a bartender in New York at the scene, a bar called The Scene in in New York. And he did a crazy show with Rudnick, uh, called Rudnick and Frawley on, um, in New Jersey at that time. What I thought about Dennis Frawley was this. He was uh, very unique. And I really like radio talent that has a unique sound. Right. He didn't have, he didn't have a radio voice, you know, typical, that you would hear on commercials, etc. But he was really had a unique voice, and, a, and his personality really came through with it. And I really liked that. Now, he mostly did the all-night show when I was there. I used to like listening to that show. We listened to each other, all of us, but we were all different. Dixon would be more inclined to play a softer sound. Uh, I like to rock more. To me, rock and roll is dance music. You know, that's how I played it. Yeah, I like rhythms. Well, it's interesting since I've been doing this movie and I do a segment about the early days of rock and roll. Every day, I start my day with. Uh, the little short video of uh, Rocket 88 by uh, Ike Turner. But, yeah, anyway, I digress. Uh, another thing I want to ask you about uh, about your ABX days there is um, it, it, you just kind of touched on that, is what I find interesting about those days is listening to your show, I would com- I would hear completely different music than, and say, if I listen to Jerry Lubin at a different time of the day. It, you guys were right. – it, it, that was – that wasn't as formatted. I mean – well, you were asked. I mean, when you got a job there, you were told, okay, here's four hours, and your job is to fill those four hours. That's what you were supposed to do. With the, with the, with the intent to introduce great music to the people, right? Right, exactly. That was, that was your job. Uh, so what would happen is I was, everybody was different, basically uh, playing from the same menu. But I would I would play what Dave Dixon wouldn't play. So you you'd be hearing it all sooner or later if you listened to the radio station. And and our and our meetings were epic. I mean, I hated going to them because they were very democratic. And even even the the kids that worked there would have something to say, you know. So so it was hard to get it was hard to get a consensus, but 
somehow we worked it out. Another person I wanted to ask you about early in those days, because later on he became quite the mentor to not just me, but to many other people. And I, I'm sure I'm not even sure if if you knew him, but if you did, could you could you talk to me about what he was like back then? And that's uh, when he was the PD at Riff when they went from XYZ to Riff. Could you talk to me about uh, what you remember about Dick Kern in those early days? Oh yeah, Dick was a lovely guy. Um, <clears throat> Dick Kernan, when I was the news wire boy at Wixie, was Lee Allen Spinner at Walls Lake Casino, and also he would do uh, if you get get friends of them were on you know uh, remotes they were called. He would be spinning songs back at the studio, so I didn't know him very well. Maybe saw him in the hallway or something. So I was working for ABC. I was in Chicago. I didn't like Chicago. And Rick is an ABC station. So I asked if I could be transferred back to Detroit. And they said, well, talk to them in, you know, in Detroit. So I went and I, I called Dick. He said, Joe, yeah, come see me. So I went home and I went to see Dick Kernan. And he said, yeah, if you want to, if you want to come home, I got a show for you. So I did. Now, Dick Kernan saw me arrive in my Corvette convertible (laughs) uh, with really long hair below my shoulders, wearing probably snakeskin boots and (laughs) bell-bottom, you know, Levi's. And uh, so that's who he saw. And he told me years later that after he hired me, the general manager at WLS in Chicago called him and said, we just want you to know that Dan Carlisle is a communist. And Indictus reflected on what a communist would be compared to somebody who's driving a Corvette. You know, these people just didn't like hippies, so-called hippies. At ABC in Chicago. I, I have to interject here, and I and you can continue the story. Dick has told me that story, but he never told me who it was about. He told me that story as a cautionary tale. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for inciting, for revealing that mystery. But go on, because that's great. So, they called you a communist. Communist? Yeah, because, you know, we were anti-Nixon. We were weird, you know. To them, we were weird. We were just the same... We were just their kids, you know. That's what we were. So how did you how did you come to leave uh, ABX? Was it uh, was it on bad terms? Well, I mean, bad terms for for John Detz, not for me. Well, John Detz and the sales staff, you know, they were making a fortune on us, and they weren't paying us very much money. Now, I was me and Jerry Lubin were the only two there that really had rock commercial rock radio experience. Dave Dixon did uh, middle-of-the-road music, more adult, contemporary. And Dave had another income source because of music writing, you know. He wrote a couple of songs for Peter, Paul, and Mary. So he had a, a money stream every year from, from that. $80 a week was not enough. I mean, it just wasn't. I had to live with my parents. Right. So um, I asked for more money. I didn't get an answer. And so John Small, the original general manager of ABX, was now at WKNR-FM. He said, why didn't you come over here? And I said, sounds good. How much were you paying me? So he gave me you know, 250 a week. That was a lot of money. 
that was you know guys in the car factories are making that. Oh yeah, that was a ton of money at the time for sure. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, my new Corvette cost four grand, and that's what kind of money. Yeah. So <clears throat> I typed up my resignation letter and left it on the in an envelope on the billboard in the hallway. John Detz's name on it, but I forgot to sign it. So John Detz comes in the next day, reads my screed, and starts calling all the DJs to find out who it was. And I was the last person he called. And he woke me up and said, I, "Did you write this?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "Why?" He said, "Because I'm, I need need to live a life. I'm, I'm an adult." Yeah. And so I, I went to WKNR. What was your experience like there? <clears throat> it was a blast. Uh, they had uh, money, great equipment. Yeah, they were good. And um, the decision there, see, Mark Perna was there, Paul Kreiner, me, Jesse Crawford, Michael Turner. Uh, our decision was not to not to be ABX. You know? ABX was a thing unto itself. Our decision was to just rock hard in ABX. So that's what we did. And you were at a great station because it all started, the, the top 40 in Detroit started, I mean, mm-hmm. CKLW, but obviously Keener, AM, before FM. Yeah, so. Keener, was, Keener was still going. But we were taking, we, they started to understand that the uh, the future was FM at that time. So which, I had a good time there. Which leads to my next question. I mean, it's it sounds crazy now, but uh, could you talk about the whole era of, when FM, I mean, it started with ABX and 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 obviously the AMs became FMs and kind of just after they they did different things after the simulcast. But talk about the dynamic of people having to get converters into their cars. Do you remember that? I mean, Mickey Shore yeah, made I a do. fortune <clears throat> off of that. Talk about that. That yeah. was cool. Well, uh, Mickey Shore, who was a DJ at WXYZ AM back in the fifties, had a good one too. I used to like his show. He had a sound shop, and he decided that he knew ABX was going to be something because he had been program director there at one time for an all-girls, all-woman format that didn't work. So he thought, we'll get these converters because people just did not have them in their car, but the kids wanted it. I think the converter was five bucks, and, and they would install it. Right. In hopes that you would get the better speakers, you know, and everything. Of course, they were available on cars, starting to be available as standard equipment. That was really necessary for our success. Because prior to that, FM was what you heard in the dentist's office. Right. It was classical. It was jazzy. Yeah. Right. Or subscription, you know. So uh, the reason that we were able to do what we did at ABX is because it didn't, they had tried everything and nothing worked. Nobody was listening. So they said, why not give this over to these uh, crazy people and see what happens? Yeah. He, he would, Mickey Short took advantage. All right. So you're at Keener. You're, you're fly, flying high. When? Uh, when? What time? <clears throat> what year was it? And why did you leave uh, Keener FM? And where did you go from there? Well, Keener FM left us. They so got sold. I think it's WNIC now. And they got sold and they decided to change the format. So. We were we were done. All of us went to ABC. And, and what um, what year was that? Don't remember. Okay, okay. So so where did where did where? So then you went to New York, and that that was WNEW, yes. Well, I went to New York um, from Los Angeles. 
went to Chicago, came back to Detroit. Uh, Holy Toledo. Wow, okay. Went to W4. Then I went to Los Angeles. Los Angeles. I think I went to New York. So I went to uh, somewhere in there. I went to Miami. Oh, yeah, I left K-Rock. Oh, I know. I left K-Rock. You, the, your audience doesn't know about K Rock in LA. In LA, yeah. I mean, I think yeah. I think a lot of people do. It's a it's a famous okay. station, yeah. Yeah. So at that time, at K Rock, they were owned by Mexicans out of Mexico, and your checks would bounce. You know, I remember one day saying, "I'm not coming on to do my show unless you buy me a sandwich." Oh man! Because and I want some gas in my car because you know. Your checks are bouncing. So I took a job in Miami. I had to. I had, I had, you know, I had, I was not going to be able to pay rent or anything. So I went to Miami. I hated Miami, the Lauderdale area. And as soon as I could, um, I went to Philly. The guy I worked with in LA became TD. So I went to Philly. W, cool. w, that's WMMR, I think, right? Yeah. Went to Philly. And that's, that was a, um, trying to think of the corporation they own in UW too. Uh, Metro Media. So I asked Metro Media to transfer me back out to San Francisco to KSAN. They did. So I went there, back to LA, and then I got a call from New York. Now in New York, for DJs, that's the Holy Grail. There's only there at that time there were seven rock jobs in New York on FM, available. Most people were hanging on to them until they were taken out and shot, you know. My friend uh, called me up, Charlie Kendall, and he said, do you want to come to New York? He says, come on. I got an evening show for you. So I went to New York, and that was probably one of the scariest, but most uh, enjoyable Radio jobs I ever had in my life. You're gonna to have to explain why why it was the scariest. Explain why it was the scariest. Well, you know the process. You're being heard in four states. To start with and a huge population. I mean, the city itself is eight million. Right. So even if you were unsuccessful, hundreds of thousands of people are listening to you in any night. Right. So you know, I was in on. I was on at every cat. You know, in, in New York City at night. But but that and had to be doing, exhilarating too, knowing that so many people were listening to you. I well, mean, that's... yeah, it was it was incredibly exhilarating. The first night I was going to be on the air, I'm walking to the studio and it's on Forty Second and Third uh, Avenue, right at the you know Grand Central Station, the Chrysler Building, right in the middle of Midtown. And so it's nine o'clock at night, and the city is buzzing, you know. I get up and I go on the air and you can feel it. And you can feel that. But the one thing you have to do when you're on the air in New York, you better perform. And I was pretty, I had to say, as bad as I was at one time, I had reached myself in New York. I was pretty good. And I had a wonderful time. I had the best time on the radio. People in New York love good radio. The audience was huge. Yeah, that was in New York City. 
And well, that's extraordinary. I mean, people thought, you know, worked their their entire career to get into a major market. And I mean, you've worked in Detroit, in, in, in Los Angeles, Miami, Philadelphia, Chicago, and of course, the pinnacle uh, of, of broadcasting period, whether you're talking about radio or television is New York. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. How? Right. Did, what? What was the biggest high about being on the air and having so many listeners? What? What did you get? Some perks? I mean, what was some of the big things that kind of cool happened to you at that time in that era? Well, my tendency is to hang out with my friends, not not with uh, guitar players and, and stuff. I'm not gre- aggressively interested in that kind of life. But to me, going on the air where I was told. You have to entertain. You can't just come on here and say, I just played this or just played that. Stay around because I'm going to play that next. You had to entertain people. So I did. I had characters. I, I grabbed a kid from Brooklyn out of the news department who would bring me my weather, right? Like I did years ago to Lee Allen. And he had a, he had a Brooklyn accent, and I used him as my newsman. And every night I wrote... Uh, a one-minute feature or two-minute feature called The Big Lie News. Yeah, that's we awesome. had a sounder. Yeah, and he would do the news. And I would always put something in. I wouldn't let him read it beforehand because it was so absurd. I wanted him to stumble on it and freak out, you know, while he was in the middle of the story about what he was reading. And uh, we did that. I mean, we had that. I had a couple of other people that would make appearances. I had my own cab driver, literally. I'd get off the air, and that cab would be sitting at the curb waiting for me. Wow. And he would go with us, however many people there were, and hang out all night, drive here and there, go here and there. Let's get off the air at 1 o'clock in New York. And at 1 o'clock, that's about when all the people on Broadway, the entertainers, everybody who's service people, are getting off work, you know, whether they're entertainers. And so I would go for a swim first uptown and it was at a pool that was open 24 hours. And then we'd go out and maybe around seven or eight in the morning, I'd come home. It was fun. But with that said, you know, I walk around in downtown Rochester. I might run into a guy I went to high school with, but when you're walking around New York City, you might see Dan Aykroyd. You might see uh, Madonna. You might see Derek Jeter. No? Yeah, um, but, you know, in New York, the cool is you never talk to those people because they have to have a place they can just be without being harassed. Um, if you're a tourist, I guess that would happen, but we would see people. You just don't – you just leave them alone, right? Right. Well, but but you're on the air. I mean, these people, I'm sure, are coming in the studio. So, I mean, uh, did you have do you have like a somebody that you that stands out as maybe somebody you had on the air with you? Because you you said you did you you kind of you, you were old school. You did the entertainment. You weren't just spinning records. So I'm sure from right. time to time you'd have some of these guys come in. No. Yeah, people would come up. I mean, they would ask the, the record companies would ask. You have to understand that your your weight in the market as a DJ on the hottest radio station in New York City was tremendous. And if somebody was playing in town, they wanted to be there, right? Talk on the radio. Hey, we're in town. We're at the blah, blah, blah. You know, come see us. Right. So there was always people people coming and coming and going. You tried to keep it light. You know, I'm, I, my first job was to play rock and roll. Uh, 
not to interview people. But if they came up, uh, we would do five minutes, you know, play a song, hang out. Sometimes they would just come up and hang out. So, You know, one of the things that uh, John O'Leary and I talked about, I can't remember which of the podcasts, but we were talking about uh, introducing bands. Could you talk about, did you ever get an opportunity to introduce bands to, to coming up, when coming into town to in, interview? Uh, could you talk about some of those experiences? Well, I, sure guess, I, guess, I guess the only one that I really is worth talking about is the Bob Seger live album. I mean, oh, you know me, what? Huh? As I'm talking to you, that's right. You're in the liner notes, aren't you? I was the announcer on the album. Could you I'm talk about board. that? Could you talk about that experience, Dan? That's amazing. Sure. Sure. I was asked, I don't like doing that. Because I'm, I'm shyer than radio people aren't necessarily uh, a personality people, yep, you know. Yep. Some of them are. John O'Leary likes that kind of thing. I didn't like that kind of thing. I'm self-conscious about that. I don't like to say, "Hey, I'm Dan Carlisle." You know, I like to just kind of melt into the the background when I'm not on radio. Right. right. So uh, I was asked, "Do you want to?" Bob did two shows, I believe two days in a row. And I was asked, do you want to do the MC on whatever night it was? I said, sure. I guess that'd be fun. And so I did. I had to think of something to say. And, and what I said was the truth. You know, you're here because you want the real thing. Bob Seger. That was it. So, I, and at the end, you know, the encore part. Right. But so I did, I did that and uh, went out, sat down, watched the show. When the show was going to start in the end, I went back stage again and came out and brought him back for his encore. So time goes on and Seeger calls me up and says, you want to hear my live album? It's done. I have it. And I said, sure. And he said, well, come on over. So I went over to his place or somebody's house and he played it on tape, not as a, not as a vinyl. And when it was over, he said, so what'd you think? And I said, well, it's, you know, it's very good, Bob. It's a great live album. I really caught it. He says, no, but what did you think about you? And I did not even recognize myself. Really? I didn't. I didn't even. It was played. It went right over my head. I didn't even recognize. It had been months. Wow. You know, since we had done it. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know, he said, what did you think of you, you idiot? I mean, you know, you're sitting here listening to it. I said, well, I didn't even, didn't even notice that. Well, after that, I never wanted to do it again. Oh, man. I never, I mean, why? I mean, certainly I did do it a couple of times again, but it's, it makes me so nervous that um, I, I don't like to do it. I did it in New York at Madison Square Garden a couple of times. Um, but I can't say it was, it was, you know, it's not needed. You could have somebody backstage have a mic well, say, ladies and gentlemen, the kinks, you know. <laughs> There's no reason for me to be there. And that's kind of what it became. I mean, the bands kind of started taking their own person around. But anyway. I was, uh, at that time, holding the highest ratings they had ever had at night on NEW. So I was, I owned the nighttime radio in New York. That's how, that's how good we were doing. And I also had somehow in my life gotten myself uh, addicted to uh, drugs and alcohol. And there came a time when my partner said to me, uh, I'm going back to California because I don't want to, I don't want to live this kind of life. And 
being out every night and up of it, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I decided it was like this moment of clarity that you can have occasionally in life. And this moment of clarity saved my life. I thought, well, shit, um, I can stop doing this. It's not that entertaining. So I did. I, I went down, to, I decided to go to AA meetings down in what's called the Bowery at that time in New York. And that's where all the bums were. That's where all the victims of drugs and alcohol were, littering the streets. But there were AA meetings down there. So I went to those meetings. Um, Talk about humbling, I, right? Talk about, I'm sure that was humbling, right? It was frightening to me to see where I was headed if I didn't straighten out. And I sat there with people who, who hadn't bathed in weeks, probably. Uh, people who were you know, almost comatose from alcohol and drugs. And, uh, and I did my 90 days there. And I kept doing my show. So that wasn't an easy trip, you know, to do. But I was never the kind of uh, problematic person who missed the show. I always did my show. I always worked. I didn't let it beat me that way. But so I, I stopped using drugs now. I've never touched a, a drop or a line or anything since then. It's been like, you know, 40 years ago. Wow. That's fantastic, so, Dan. That's good. It, it straightened my own, straightened me out. But there's, you know, look, there's repercussions for all that. One of the repercussions is that your maturity level stops somewhere, you know, along the line when you're doing the kind of drugs that, are, that affect your nervous system and your brain. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I had to uh, get out of New York. I had to stop everything. So I resigned. And not a good decision. But I felt then that um, in order to save myself, I had to leave New York City. How long was it before you got back into radio, and what did you do at that time? Well, I went to San Francisco, and uh, hung out in San Francisco, worked at uh, a non-essential radio station for a while, and then I just quit radio altogether. I didn't want anything to do with it. And I went, uh, I tried to decide what would I like to do. I didn't finish college. I was going to be a psychiatrist, I guess, or something like that when I was in college. So what I did is I decided, what do I like outside of music? And I like cars a lot. So I went down to a big car dealership and I said, can you teach me how to sell cars? And they did. And that's what I did for 10 years. Cool. Never touched, never did radio, never never did anything with it. And then about three years ago, I decided, well, no one's going to hire me at this point if I wanted to go back in. So I'll just go where they'll hire me. So I went to this station that's like a public station, public supported. I mean, it's a hobby level, right? Right. That's a hobby level. There's no money involved. And I said, I'd like to do a show, but I want to do just whatever I feel like doing. And they said, sure, fine, do it. So that's what I'm doing. That's awesome. I do a show called The Everything Show. I do anything I want every week for three hours. And I've taken it from 
having three listeners one night. <laughs> Imagine that, three li- listeners of the whole world. That's all who was listening to me. To having, you know, a thousand plus downloads a month on this show. So That's too cool. World, Good for you. Worldwide. That's awesome. Now, can you give us a little flavor, a little taste of what somebody who tunes in hears as far as what you do as far as programming? Yeah, I mean, I like new music. I'm not I'm not doing the classic rock show, okay? I like new music, so I mix. I'm just playing everything. You could have heard last week. You could have heard the latest Motric, uh, Porcupine Tree, you know, all of that new stuff, along with um, the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra with Dave Brubeck or, you know, the Thelonious Monk was in there. I play whatever I want. And if you're an old person like me, you know, you could find by listening to my show that the new music is fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. For someone who, who uh, talking to, about myself, who likes a certain types of t- kind of music and a certain era of music, it's been a long time since I've gotten excited about uh, an artist or a piece of music. And I, I, I want to ask you your thoughts about Silk Sonic, Bruno Mars and Silk Sonic. I am all about these two right now. Have you? What do you think of that Silk Sonic thing? Well, I haven't, I haven't uh, got any opinion about that. Um, I like Bruno Mars, though. Um, Bruno Mars, first time I saw him on TV, but he was really new school, old school, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I really like like the fact that I'm watching somebody that obviously knew something about the origins of rhythm and blues. You could see it the way he his choreography, the song type that he was yeah that he was using. That's very yeah. exciting. Um, that's why I really, when I first started doing this, I was told by a few that the audience that was in their 40s, 50s, 60s would not listen to my show because of the new music. But they do listen to it. Well, some of us still like to be introduced to new music. So on that point, I mentioned Silk Sonic. Who is an artist or someone that, that you've taken interest in that you that maybe a lot of people my age, 50 and over, might not know about? Could you share some of those artists that you've gotten to know well, a little bit? Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. Of course, I like things like Beck. I mean, Beck is just a, an amazing artist. I like old stuff, too. I like Wayne Hancock. You know who Wayne Hancock is? No. He's like a, a, a 70s Hank Williams. I will check him out. Yeah. Um, I don't know what to say. I like Motric. I like, you know, my show, I play about 40 songs in, right. in that show. And it's always different. Every week is different. So, and, and it sounds like you put a lot of time and effort and thought into into what you put on your program, don't you? Still old school. It takes it takes it takes five days to put a three hour show together. Where you just like the Rufus Du Soul, uh, Placebo, Boy Harsher, Art Bat. Uh, and if you don't know new music and you're hearing this, you're probably oh God, I wouldn't want to hear that. You would, because these are the people who are the successors from the Creams and the MC Fives and. Thingy and the Stooges, you know what I mean? Well, and, and by to, the way, it, I, I played Iggy Pop singing lounge music last week on the Lonnie Smith album, doing Sunshine Superman. 
fascinating, isn't it? That's crazy. That's nuts. That's that's interesting. That's good. That's what we need. We need diversity. I, I think people in 2021 don't want to be niched out into a particular genre of music. I think there's so much out there in different genres that for people of all walks of life. You know what I mean? One of the things that ABX didn't have, which would have been made everything, if you thought ABX was great then, if they had this one thing, it would have been a monster in your life. That one thing was YouTube. The ability to go up online and be able to call up the world music, the world of music everywhere in the world, listen to it, download it. I mean, where could you have done that in the 60s? Nowhere. You couldn't do it anymore. Let me ask you this, uh, back to the to the subject of radio, and, and, and not that you've soured, but, I mean, as much as I've, I've seen change since being in radio as, as a career since the year 2000, you go back to the to the late 60s, you have seen this industry change in, in, a fun, in like just in a crazy way. Uh, I mean, obviously digital changed everything when that came about in the late 90s, but from from, from looking back, to the beginning of your career from now, what do you think are, are some of the biggest changes, good and or bad, that have happened to the medium of radio from your perspective, Dan? Well, I think that it started on the downside of this started at the end of ABX, I think, which is that the sales departments took over programming. That That did it. That was the end of it. Because Sales departments don't want change. Uh, if they don't understand it, they don't want it because they don't know how to sell it. So if they find something, that's why you had classic rock radio. It was just freezing the 60s and the 70s. And that's, that meant that you weren't, getting, uh, you weren't getting a fresh crop of DJs with fresh ideas. I mean, they wouldn't even hire uh, DJs that did ABX. Right. Yeah, because they didn't want to be bothered by people who had vision or who would challenge their thoughts on what we should play or not play. If you liked ABX, you would love my radio show. Simple as that. Well, and, and you know, I, I this is something I talked about with John O'Leary, not to keep dropping his name, but he is on top of my mind, uh, is we talked about one of the things that made ABX great is like he would, he would, and he would kind of tell the story about how he would maybe play the wrong song that he introduced. And so he would pull the, the needle off the thing and he would go off the mic and say, Hey, hold on a second. I'm doing this. And, that. and then he would come back and he would have the record. And he would be doing all this so he could reset the record. But, but the reason he talks about that, it was the humanness. It wasn't robotic. It wasn't like, especially when the digital age came and if you messed up, you could just re-record your break. There was some realness, especially about ABX. Not only was it the music and the personalities that you guys brought to the table, but it was the realness, wasn't it? Well, I think that we were pretty conscious guys, you know, about what we were doing. I think our idea about the future was this, that we talked about. Now, we had no idea about the technology of the future, right? We were talking about programming. We felt that for ABX to be successful, we had to be. Um, we had to think that a three share was fine. We were never going to be a, a major player in mass media. You're just not going to be when you're not when you're just playing what you want to play, right? 
it's going to have a, it has a, a certain population of people like that. Right. But we felt that if you could just get that three and and stabilize there, and we felt we would be necessary to every ten years to bring in a younger younger DJs too, the older DJs with the younger DJs, so that it would always have a fresh a fresh attitude. And we thought we could go on and become the JR of uh, you know of, of FM that way. Well, you were, de- problem, you were definitely trendsetters for sure. But the problem was is that we weren't in charge of anything. And I remember when KSAN went down, and KSAN was a very, an ABX of San Francisco. And the night that they were going to change to country, there was a party, the, the goodbye party. I, I some uh, this millionaire calls you up, Mr. Dan Carlisle. I appreciate that you're doing the Everything Show, and you can continue to do that. But uh, here's a boatload of money. I want you to program this entire radio sh- station, uh, Dan Carlisle. How are you going to how are you going to program that radio station? What are you going to do with that station? Hire people you thought were talented, who had real real talent to uh, of expression. Make sure that everybody was on the same page. What you wanted to do, no matter how crazy it was going to be. Everybody has to be in on the crazy, and then let them let them let them show me. Go on the air. That do your be- do, do your your version of great radio. Would you would you Pete, would, would you Pete Rose it? Would you be a player manager a player manager? Would you put yourself on the air for four hours? I'd love to see that. That'd be fun. I, I, I think so. That's what I do. I mean, I'm not. A, Right, right. I'm not a I'm not a program director. I'm a, I'm a performer, so that's what I do. So what's, but that's what's... not going to happen. That's not going to happen. And, <laughs> what, and the and the way the way I'm doing my show now, it's really been relegated to uh, listener supported, low power FM stations way in the background. They don't want to be bothered by what we're doing. Well, if it's one thing but, I've but, learned, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. But there. I'll tell you this. I think that terrestrial radio has killed itself. I don't think there's any coming back. I think that they they were so they're so they were so concerned with making their millions and millions of dollars that they would they would fire everybody and prune the staff smaller and smaller till you had three live voices and the rest is voice tracking. So that's what they've done to it. And it has no, it doesn't have any immediacy anymore. It doesn't have any charm. It isn't, isn't a necessary thing for you to listen to it anymore. It's and, just background. Well, and good or bad, I mean, there's really no motivation to do anything better simply because the radio is still in your car. Um, even though less and less people have radios in their home, it's still in your car, it's still part of, of daily life. And the fact is, because there are so many choices, radio, because it is still so uh, available, is still getting, you know, besides television, the lion's share. Um, so to that point, uh, because there's so many choices, if you know, a devil's advocate would say, you know, is, is it does it do any good to have the number one show uh, in the morning show like Riff does or – or for, for for whatever, or whatever it is in San Francisco. Well, I don't know how to game the rating service. You know, they know how to game that. Uh, but the difference is that, it, it, let's say at ABX, the time spent listening would be 8 to 12 hours a day. Phenomenal. Time spent listening now is 6 minutes. 
seven minutes, ten minutes, that's that means that you're not you don't really have a hold on people. They're skipping around. They're changing the channel on you when your commercials start. So. Yeah, to, well, to that point, I, I remember very early in my career before he got all political listening to Rush Limbaugh, and I remember, I and I can't even tell you, Dan, what the subject was, but I remember his, his teaser before the break was so riveting. I was late for work, and I waited seven minutes in my car so I could hear the payoff. And like I said, right. I remember that story, don't remember what he was talking about, but that's the power of radio, whether, whether you're talking about, it, it's just about you want people to listen. That's your job, entertain them, right? Well, I mean, it was. But if you haven't got anything to say about what you're doing, your job is just like having a megaphone, you know. Your job is just to be a presenter. You have nothing to do with the program. So why does it matter if I listen to you or somebody else? It doesn't. But look, I don't like to flame on commercial radio. Sure. Um, commercial radio can be very good. It can be stupendous. I mean, the mid-50s, 60s radio basically was top 40 radio, and a lot of it was unbelievably fun to listen to. WABC in New York, WLS AM in Chicago, these were monster stations. And the DJs on those stations were were exciting to listen to. I wanted to be one of them. So I have nothing against commercial radio that's done with some heart. I think we're poised for a comeback, Dan. I'm hoping. I'm optimistic, sir. Well, have you listened to my show? I, I have caught it once. It's been a minute, but I'm going to tune in. Uh, I'm going to tune in after we after we get off because uh, <laughs> it's been a minute. I, when, when I was introduced to you as a person as, as that you were on there, I listened to it. So it's been a few months. All right. Look, it, for everybody else who's listening to this, you can go to KXSF in San Francisco and you can hear it live Saturdays. 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific time, or at your own convenience on Apple Podcasts or on Amazon or on Google or on any number of platforms. It's the Everything Show from Dan Carlisle. Uh, some of those platforms like Apple Podcasts, there's other shows with that name, unfortunately. So you have to put my name in to, to get my version of it. On KXSF, just go to the podcast section and my show is there. Check it out. I think that you'll enjoy it. I know the difference between I'm doing something that's bad and something good, so <laughs> I, th I think you'll like it. Check check that out. And also, if you're like me, I also I just recently picked up uh, Bob Seger's uh, live album, Silver Bullet. And so I'm going to listen to that again for Dan uh, Carlisle on there. So, again, thank you so much for taking the time and talking with uh, with us today, Dan. I really, I really appreciate it. Okay. It was fun. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dan, and uh, and thank you for tuning in for Radio Days, the podcast. And, of course, keep an eye out for Radio Days, the movie, coming soon. Again, if you'd like to help out and become a producer for this movie, click on the heart at the top of the Buzzsprout page. Um, and you can also find uh, find an access to that as well at ronrobinsonstudios.com. Today's show is produced by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos or professional photography headshots, maybe you need drone video or photography Head over to ronrobinsonstudios.com where you can hear previous episodes of this podcast, Radio Days, the podcast there as well. Thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for yet another episode of Radio Days, the podcast. Until then. You can't go. All the plants are going to die.